you would turn with me to Acts chapter 12, continuing our uh, study in the book of Acts, getting ready to move into a section that focuses primarily on uh, Paul and his missionary work. That'll go through the end of the book, but Acts chapter 12 pauses uh, first to focus again on Peter and uh, the things that were happening to the church, particularly in Jerusalem uh, at this time. And so if you're able, would you stand with me as we read from this part of God's Word from Acts chapter 12? I'll read the entire chapter. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door regarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands and the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out, went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But, he most, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. 
immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. He was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. Would you join me as we go to the Lord in prayer? Oh Lord God, this is your word. Your word is truth. Would you sanctify us in the truth? Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And we pray that you would apply your work to our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit who is at work in us with the same power by which Jesus was raised from the dead. And so, Lord, we pray that you would build us up in your word, equip us for every good deed, that we might live for the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. How can we stand firm and faithful in a, a world, a society, a culture that is becoming increasingly uh, hostile, uh, toward the Christian faith, toward what Christians believe and teach and how Christians live. Uh, this is a question that many are asking, and uh, recently a man named Aaron Wren wrote an article kind of trying to highlight the relationship that the church has experienced uh, with the broader culture, the broader society, particularly in America. And he kind of has identified three, three eras he calls them, of uh, the relationship between the church and the world. Uh, he says there was a certain era in the past, uh, kind of up to the, the mid-90s, basically, in which the, the attitude toward the church, the relationship between the church and the broader society was a positive one. You kind of think back over at least American history, you can see this, where the kind of the dominant way that people thought about things, the, the dominant uh, influence on broader society was, was basically Christian. That's uh, not to say everybody was a believer or a member of church or anything like that, but it's just to say that was the, the main worldview that was impacting the way people thought about things, the way people viewed the world. There was a positive kind of appraisal, if you will, of, of the church, of what, what Christians believed and how they lived. He says that about the 90s, there was a little bit of a shift. He calls it the, the neutral stage, where there's kind of, it's not really positive, it's not really negative, it's just kind of somewhat indifferent. Uh, and then he says somewhere around 2014, things shifted. Now, this is just his evaluation. These don't have to be hard lines. Uh, but he says somewhere around 2015, things shifted so that now the relationship, the way the world has appraised the church, at least in America, has gone from positive to somewhat indifferent and now to what he calls the negative stage, that there is an increasing hostility from the broader culture toward uh, Christian faith, toward what Christians believe and teach and how Christians seek to live. And, and you can, we could give lots of examples. I think you probably get the point that there is an increasing hostility toward the church from the broader culture. Uh, Peter Jones, who uh, is, is one, was one of the first missionaries in the PCA and works for an organization called Truth Exchange, Peter Jones has offered a fourth phase, a fourth stage from positive, neutral, negative. And he says that the fourth stage likely will be persecution. 
that the church ought to be expecting and ought to be preparing for a situation in which it's no longer just kind of a negative view of the church, some mild, if you will, hostility toward Christian faith and life, uh, but an active era of persecution. Whether he's right or not will, uh, remains to be seen. But at the very least, we can say uh, that this is the pattern of the history of the church. We see this in the book of Acts. There's kind of these waves of uh, opposition to the church, kind of comes and goes. And in Acts chapter 12, there is an increase. There is an intensification of this hostility towards the church. Just You see this in a few ways. Uh, one, it's no longer just the religious leaders involved. Now you've got Herod, Herod Agrippa, uh, the grandson of Herod the Great who went after Jesus when he was born. Uh, he's the dominant power. He's the king in charge. So now it's no longer just the religious authorities. It's, if you will, it's the state authorities going after the church. There's an increase in violence. Um, he targets the particular leaders in the church. James, one of the original 12 apostles, the first apostle to be martyred. Uh, Luke just kind of passes over it quite quickly because his focus is on Peter. But he says, James is killed by the sword, which is another maybe gentle way of saying that his head was cut off. There's an increase in violence. Uh, not only James, but Herod sees that the people are uh, pleased with this. And so he goes after Peter, imprisoning him. Uh, we're, we're to expect with the, the same plan for Peter that he had for James. There is an intensification of violence towards the church. And yet, one of the things that we see from this passage as we think about what must we do in order to stand firm be faithful in the face of any kind of increasing hostility, uh, this passage calls us to see and to find courage from the fact that there is a bigger plan of God at work behind the specific hostilities that we see playing out in the world, playing out in Acts chapter 12, that there is a larger plan at work. You see this in a couple of ways. Uh, let me just point out one way Luke is indicating that the plan of God is bigger and triumphant over the adverse evil plans that any authorities have against the church. Notice just the structure, the layout of this story. You look back at the end of Acts chapter 11, we end with Barnabas and Saul in Antioch. At the end of chapter 11, verse 30, they are entrusted with taking this offering from Antioch to Jerusalem during a severe famine to go and serve the church, minister to the church in Jerusalem. So you end with that at the end of chapter 11. Beginning of chapter 12, there's this focus on the hostility of Herod. He kills James. He imprisons Peter. And then you've got this long section of Peter being delivered from prison in this miraculous kind of funny way. I mean, it's kind of a funny story as it unfolds. Peter doesn't really know what's going on. Rhoda comes to the door to let him in. She doesn't even let him in. She's so excited. Everybody thinks she's mad. She's gone out of her head. They don't even believe it, even though they've been praying for it and so forth. But Peter is delivered. And then it goes back to Herod. Herod's so mad about it, he kills the guards who were supposed to be keeping watch over Peter. 
And then Herod himself experiences the judgment of God in a severe way for receiving glory to himself rather than giving it to God. But then how does Acts chapter 12 end? It comes full circle. The word of God increased. Barnabas and Saul came back from Jerusalem after completing their mission. You see how these bookends work. Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Herod, Herod, Peter's deliverance right in the middle. Luke is telling us, and simply the way that he's outlined the story, he's telling us there's a bigger plan at work that will not be thwarted by any hostility that is ever shown against the church. It it's, uh, kind of reminds me, I think, I think I get this from Wallace, you'll probably remember this, but it reminds me of those old black and white movies where there's a damsel in distress, she's tied up on the railroad track and the, the train is coming and it's so slow, just like, you know, they keep looking at the train, looking at the damsel and the train moves, moves maybe an inch every minute or so, but it's, it's a dangerous situation and the villain is standing by and he's twisting his mustache because he, you know, he's waiting for, I guess, the hero to come so that he can get the hero. The, the damsel in distress is used kind of as a, a, a bait to draw the hero in, and he's twisting his mustache, but he's foiled, right? He's foiled again because the hero arrives, he rescues uh, the one in danger, and the evil plans of this villain are um, foiled. Herod Agrippa, the, the king in this story, has these plans, these designs of hostility against the church, it's a new song, but it's the same melody. It's, it's all part of this spiritual battle that's going on behind the scenes that we've been told about in multiple places in the scriptures. Just think about Psalm 2, for example. All the, all the kings of the nations uh, kind of pictures them assembling together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And what does the Lord in heaven do when all the kings gather against his people, against his Messiah, what does the Lord in heaven do? He scoffs. They, they are no match for him. Uh, Jesus is taken by the authorities, put under this mock trial and condemned to death simply by the frivolous wishes of the people. Satan's at work and all of that, cer certainly, and yet it's God's plan. Jesus' death is not some victory of evil people. It's part of God's plan to overcome evil through the death and resurrection of his son. You have this image, this uh, battle going on repeated throughout the scripture. You read in the meditative passage from Revelation 12, and maybe you were scratching your head wondering why we're reading about a dragon and a woman and like earth swallowing up water. All, what's all this weird stuff in the book of Revelation? That, that scene in Revelation is picking up on the same idea in Psalm 2. The nations, the powers, the authorities, oftentimes with satanic influence behind them, gathering together against the Christ and against the church, seeking to do them harm. And yet what are we told in Revelation 12 as kind of the, the curtain is drawn back and we see the bigger battle going on behind the scenes? We see Jesus preserving his church. We see Jesus even prospering his church in the face of affliction, in the face of hostility. What do we need in order to stand firm, to be faithful, to not, to not compromise in our beliefs and in our actions, to not wobble on the things that we hold dear? We need to see that there's a bigger plan at work. 
that God is sovereignly ruling over all his creatures and all their actions, and he is sovereignly working through his church and will preserve his church even in the face of hostility. God is sovereign. There's a bigger plan. Notice how Luke emphasizes this even in verses 5 and 6. Peter is in prison. He's bound. He's got four squads of soldiers kind of rotating through 24-hour day, watching over him. He's got double chains, guards at the door. I mean, he is securely kept in this prison. Verse 5, Peter was kept in prison, but what's the church doing? They're praying. That's right. They're praying. They didn't grab the camels, throw some ropes on them, and go to the prison cell and, like, tie them up to the bars and, you know, get the camels to run off and pull the wall of the prison off. They're praying to the God who rescues because they know the God that they serve and believe in is more powerful than prison, chains, guards, and even wicked kings. Notice again, even in verse 6, Herod's about to bring him out. And on that very night, God's got it all planned out. It's the timing is perfect. It's God's perfect timing. And what's Peter doing? He doesn't appear to be worried at all. He is sleeping. Sleeping between these guards bound with chains. God is sovereign and God is a rescuer of his people. He's rescued us in Jesus Christ. He's brought us out of sin and condemnation. He's forgiven us all our transgressions and given us an everlasting hope that cannot be broken by anything in this life. No jail, no sword, uh, no social, uh, no being socially ostracized for your faith. None of that can touch the surety, the certainty of God's promises to his people because he has kept them in Jesus Christ fully and perfectly. He has given us a perfect salvation, fully won and secured for us in Jesus Christ. And very often, though we have to say and acknowledge, not always, very often, God is also the rescuer of his people when they face persecution. James, the brother of John, was not rescued from Herod's violence, but he was kept secure and brought home even in his death. Peter was rescued out from Herod's violence, but he himself died. The point is not physical safety all through life simply because you are trusting in Jesus. The point is his promises never fail. He is the God who rescues eternally, fully, And he is often the God who rescues physically in this life from danger and from persecution. He is the rescuer of his people. Luke spends almost all of the passage, certainly the bulk of it, on on Peter. That's the center of the story. And he's, he's telling us something in that, that the God who rescues is faithful to hear our prayers. James, the brother of John, is killed, but Peter is rescued and God's plan prevails. His love does not fail, even in the face of persecution and death. Reminds me of, uh, of course, the well-familiar story of Jim Elliott and uh, the other missionaries who were with him serving uh, among the Aka Indians in uh, Ecuador, I believe, and gave his life, uh, was killed by those whom he was trying to reach with the gospel uh, you can read about that in Through Gates of Splendor that his wife Elizabeth wrote. And you know the story um, that, that 
Jim is killed along with several other missionaries. Elizabeth and others go back to that same area and continue to share the gospel with the people who killed uh, their husbands and that those people came to faith in Jesus Christ. And Jim Elliott is faithful for uh, saying, writing in his journal, uh, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. He knew that the promises of the gospel gave him security even in the face of hostility, in the face of all loss, that if everything he had was taken from him, including his own life, he couldn't keep it anyway. But the things which the Lord had given him in the gospel, eternal life and hope and hope of resurrection, none of that could be lost. He would gain something he could not lose, even if he gave away his own life, which he could not keep. We need to see the bigger plan, God's greater victory even in the face of hostility but we also need to see our role in this plan Uh, scripture never calls us simply to just sit back kind of let go let god scripture calls us to obedience scripture calls us to action to live out our faith And, and luke provides us in the story of the church kind of a model of what is our role within this bigger plan of god's greater victory over the forces of wickedness in this world and we see three things uh, in the story. Uh, First and probably most prominently, we see prayer. Verse 5, Peter's in prison, but the church is praying. When Peter goes in verses 12 and following to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, you've got all these extra names going on here. Um, When he goes to their house, what are they doing? They're praying. They're earnestly praying. There's a consistency and an urgency to their prayers for Peter, such that when he shows up, however long it's been that he's been in prison, we don't know, but when he shows up, they're still praying. Luke is telling us we've got a role to play within God's bigger plan of redemption and rescue and preserving his church. Our role is, in part, prayer. Um, It's not explicit, but it seems clear that the folks who were gathered at Mary's house were praying for Peter's deliverance. We understand uh, the situation. The first apostle, James, has been martyred. Uh, He was part of the inner three, Peter, James, and John. And now you have Peter, one of the other ones, of course, kind of uh, a leader among the apostles, certainly a leader among those three closest to Jesus. Now Peter is in danger of the same fate. And so they gathered to pray. Notice that this is a matter, this is an issue that affects the whole community of the church in Jerusalem. And so they gather and they commit it to prayer. Community, the community of the church is in prayer as the fruit of their fellowship and their relationship with one another. Prayer, fellowship, encouragement of one another within the body of Christ. Think about it. They know Peter, and we just read about Peter and kind of know things about him, but They lived with him. They knew him. They loved him. He was their friend. He was part of the body of Christ there in Jerusalem. They're clearly involved in each other's lives so that when Peter gets out, he knows where to go. He knows where the church is gathered. He knows that they're going to be at Mary's house, the mother of John, whose other name is Mark. And Peter goes there because this is his people. This is his fellowship. This is his community. And he knows that they are praying for him and have his interest in mind as they pray. Does our 
fellowship look like that? Does our prayer look like that? Are we willing, if I can apply it this way, are we willing to let others into our lives in such a way that they know how to pray for us? Clearly, this was a major issue in Peter's life, but I don't think we should assume that this was the only thing that they prayed for with regard to Peter or anybody else in the church. They weren't simply gathering because there was a crisis. They gathered because they were a community who belonged to Jesus Christ, who knew one another in fellowship and prayed for one another in this way. They know how to pray for one another. They know how to encourage one another. The question for us is, do we? Do we know how to pray for one another? Do we know one another's lives well enough that we know where we need encouragement, where we need prayer, even where we need correction? Do we know one another in fellowship such that the fruit of that fellowship is prayer and ministry to one another? You can think about it this way. Are, we, are you developing relationships among other believers so that you can be involved in their lives and know them well enough to pray with wisdom even in the hard things. If this passage teaches us anything about prayer, it's that prayer ought to be knowledgeable and that it is the fruit of Christian fellowship, a sharing in one another's lives. So we see prayer as our role. We see prayer as the fruit of fellowship, our union with one another as members of the body of Christ. And we also see faith as part of our role in this bigger plan of God. Their prayer is the fruit of faith. I don't know if you caught the irony of the story, though. I mean, it's so real. This is one of the reasons we believe that the Bible is you know, not a made-up thing, because the, the church doesn't always look really great in the stories that are told, and the disciples don't look awesome in all the ways that they're described in the gospel. Sometimes they're just bumbling through things. They're, they're kind of slow. It's difficult for them to grasp what's going on at times, and you see the same thing at work in the church. There's no glossing over uh, the church's kind of reluctance to accept the, this answer to prayer. It's, it's kind of humorous. Rhoda runs to the door. She hears somebody knocking uh, at Mary's house. She goes to the gate. She doesn't see Peter. She hears his voice, and she's so excited that it's Peter, she runs back. It's funny. It's, it's humorous. She doesn't even open the door. And then when she goes back, it's like the same thing that happened when the first witnesses to the resurrection, the women who showed up early to the tomb, came back and told the disciples, he's not there. He's risen from the dead. And what did the disciples say to those women who showed up and said that? You're out of your mind. The same thing they say to Rhoda. You're nuts. You're crazy. But what had they been praying for? They'd been praying that Peter, we presume, would be delivered. And then when it happens... Their faith is challenged. Could God really do this? I mean, we were just here praying. Would God really deliver Peter in such a way? Is it really him? He said, no, it's just his angel. It's not entirely clear what that means. Either way, they don't know, they don't believe yet that it's Peter until they see him. I mean, it's, it's, it ought to remind us of the stories of Jesus after his resurrection appearing to the disciples. They were slow to embrace it, slow to believe that God would work in this way, and, and perhaps we struggle in similar ways. Perhaps we struggle to pray because we don't believe that God will answer. Or maybe we think he's not able to do for us abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think. Perhaps we think that the thing that we're praying for 
the heartache that lays heavy upon us, the struggle that we're enduring, uh, the brokenness in our lives and in our relationships. Perhaps we, we think that this is not something that God can work in, that God can remedy simply through prayer. And we, and we lack oftentimes faith to see that God is able. He's able. And we see in the cross and the resurrection that he is absolutely willing to hear our prayers and to answer them according to his will and according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. I love that verse because it's saying to us, God's riches are abundant. His resources go far beyond ours. His ability uh, is infinitely greater than ours to do what we need to be done. Why would we not believe that he is able to answer our prayers? And that ought to encourage us to commit ourselves, even as the church did, earnestly in prayer. They struggled. They believed that God was able, and then when he did, they struggled to believe that he could do it. God answered their prayers and, in so doing, encouraged their faith. Their prayer and their faith certainly was sincere, but they struggled to believe that Peter was able to be delivered in this way. But God's answers are persistent. Peter keeps knocking. They let him in. They see that he is indeed present and they give glory to the Lord. And Peter tells them, go tell James, the brother of Jesus, the first mention of him in the book of Acts, and the rest of the brothers. And now uh, the brother of Jesus, James, comes to a more prominent place in leadership in the rest of the story. Are we praying earnestly for ourselves and for one another as the fruit of fellowship in Jesus Christ? Are we praying for the Lord to sustain us through trial? Are we praying for the Lord to help us to, to face the challenges of increasing hostility, perhaps, of even down the road, perhaps persecution of his people? Are we praying for the Lord to give us fortitude, strength, faith to believe his promises, even in the face of hardship, where the easy thing would be, let's say it that way, to go back on what we think we believe, to give it up, to make things easier so that we don't have to endure hardship. We must be praying for the Lord to sustain us and to give us what we need. The same power by which the Lord rescued Peter is at work today, even through our prayers. So may we pray with faith that God will answer. Finally, we need to see not only God's bigger plan and our role in that plan, but Luke ends with a sobering warning, reminding us that God, the Lord, is a terror to the oppressor. It's a sobering way to end the story, isn't it? Herod, this wicked king, kills James, imprisons Peter, kills the guards who didn't watch Peter. Uh, I mean, he's a wicked dude. He shows up in Caesarea, these two countries. He's angry with them, Tyre and Sidon. We don't, I don't know why he's angry with them, but he seems to be uh, kind of a fickle person, uh, manipulative, abusing power rather than using it for the good of others. He's, he's withholding food from these countries while Paul and Barnabas are trying to bring food to Jerusalem. It's a stark contrast. He's oppressing the church simply for the pleasure of the people, trying to curry their favor by killing James and putting Peter in prison. We don't often see this, and I don't know that we should necessarily expect it, but every once in a while we see in Scripture 
God brings his judgment into present time. We see that with Herod. It's kind of an aggravated offense. He's oppressing the church. He's showing violence, doing violence to the church. And then when he gathers to hear the pleas for peace from these two countries, he sits on his throne. He's got his royal robes on. And they start, for whatever reason, they start worshiping him, basically, as he's speaking. That's the voice of a god, not the voice of a man. Every time you see that happen among the disciples, somebody bows down to a disciple, what does he do? No, 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 don't do that. I'm just a man like you. Of course, Jesus receives it because he's not just a man like us. But here it is a man just like us. And he receives it. He does not correct them. He doesn't direct their glory giving to the Lord. He receives glory as if he is worthy of it. And Luke tells us that an angel of the Lord struck him down for not giving God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last Previously, the angel had struck Peter to awake him, to rescue him. But here, here it is struck down in judgment. God will not always bring his justice swiftly. Uh, and he gives us time so that there is time for repentance before that finality of judgment. But here, the Lord is reminding us that though he comforts the oppressed, uh, he is a terror to the oppressor. And that injustice against his people will not last forever. Luke ends, with, though, with this note of contrast. Herod breathes his last, but the word of God increases and multiplies. And Saul and Barnabas come back successful from completing their mission of bringing famine relief to Jerusalem. What do we need in order to stand firm in the face of increasing opposition You need to know the promises of God in the Bible. You need to build your faith upon those promises, grow in the depth of knowledge of God's word and of his grace to you in Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 12 reminds us of other things, that we need to be reminded that there is this bigger plan at work behind the hostilities that we see uh, at work in the world, that God's plan never fails. Uh, He is never thwarted in his purposes. And though there may be this battle raging behind the scene, he prospers his church, he preserves his church throughout the ages until he comes again in glory. And that our role in that is to pray, to believe, and to encourage one another within the fellowship of the church. There is something that is stronger than the strongest powers at work in this world. Do you know what it is? It's the love of God in Jesus Christ. And if our hearts are anchored in that love, then we will indeed be prepared to face whatever comes our way. And may he receive all the